Welcome to the Love and Marriage Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that offer insights on dating and marriage. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I appreciate the kind introduction from President Bateman, and it makes you wonder if any good can come out of American Fork. And we'll hold judgment on that till the, the end of uh, the, my presentation here today. The selection of celestial marriage as my topic today was stimulated by a research report that I read last summer. It was a study of young women attending colleges and universities across the United States. And these young women reported that dating has disappeared from the campus and that they have been left to wander in a social wilderness in their search for Mr. Wright. Now, the vast majority of these young women interviewed stated that being married is a, quote, very important goal for them. They indicated that they hoped to find Mr. Wright while attending college. They then went on to lament that dating has been replaced by, you've all heard this word, hooking up, hanging out with young men. They hang out with their acquaintances, then they pair off, hook up with a young man, which generally involves some type of drinking alcohol and sexual behavior. These young women, more often than not, felt frustrated and lonely, and most reported that they had not found Mr. Wright, which is not surprising. This is not our Heavenly Father's way. Heavenly Father loves you and desires you to be happy. And therefore, he has given righteous procedures for you to follow in your pursuit for an eternal marriage. And this is what I want to talk about today. In response to this study, my good friend and colleague Brent Topp from the College of Religious Education, along with a team of graduate students and undergraduates, Mindy, who's going to say the closing prayer, has been a leader on this project, decided to examine the dating culture among LDS youth, particularly those attending BYU. Very preliminary findings and tabulated are presented on the screen, which I can't see, but I hope and trust is up there. And it compares the desire... (laughs) Is it up there? Yes, it is. You laugh, so it's got to be there. Um, (laughs) Which compares the desire of these young women across the United States, these are non-LDS, to marry. And as you can see, it is 83%. And then we have the percentage of young people at BYU, both young men and young women. And there we are, again, I can't remember, I think it's 97 for the young women and 95 for the young men. Interestingly, marriage is very important to nearly all the BYU students. What appears to me is that you have the appropriate goal. Sometimes some of us fall a little short in the implementation, and I want to talk about ways to improve that. Now, I'm confident that each one of you have a copy of the proclamation on your family probably given to you in a nice frame by your parents. This is pure doctrine, straight from the Lord through his prophets and apostles. There have only been four proclamations in this dispensation, and each teaches eternal truths. Let me encourage you to take the time to read, to ponder, and to pray about the counsel of the Lord concerning the eternal significance of the family. Satan still thinks he has a reasonable chance to win the war he initiated in the pre-existence against God's plan. One of his most cunning strategies is to turn away the sons and daughters of God from sealing eternal relationships in holy temples. Satan is giving special attention to you, my young friends, both single and married, to create doubt in your minds about marriage. 
to create doubts in your mind about your being ready to marry, your failure to find the right one, a fear of divorce, concern about having children, and then he provides alluring sexual temptations. All of these are designed to hinder your entering and keeping sacred and eternal covenants with your companion. Today I want to share with those of you who are single some appropriate ways to establish an eternal relationship. For those of you who are married, these suggestions will assist you in nurturing a strong marriage. One of the joys of teaching at BYU is the opportunity to mingle the Scripture with the philosophy of men in a righteous fashion. <laughs> it is true. No, it's true. I, I really appreciate teaching sociology within a gospel context by linking intellect with inspiration. And this morning, I want to mingle a little social science with the Scriptures, revelation with the best research and sound reason. And out of this mixture, I have four suggestions that I want to share with you today to assist you in establishing and then strengthening a celestial marriage. The first suggestion is for all Cinderella's and Prince Charming's to throw away your glass slippers. Following Satan's encouragement, contemporary society greatly emphasizes courtship. All of the movies, all the TV programs focus on the conquest, the hunt, the finding each other. And the rest of the, the story, the most significant part of the life story, is dismissed with these six simple words, and they lived happily ever after. There's a very dangerous misperception embedded in the Cinderella and glass slipper syndrome, and it is the focus on finding the perfect person to marry with whom you will live happily ever after. I'm convinced that the Lord's plan is to find a right one rather than the right one. I admit there may be rare cases where two people covenanted in the preexistence to find each other and to marry in this life. They see each other across the Marriott Center parking lot in the Wilkinson Center, and it is love at first sight. <laughs> Occasionally, students ask me if I knew my wife in the preexistence. And, you know, what can I say? I picked this woman up on the streets of mortality. Of course I say I knew her. But then I go on to say, I knew all my sisters in the preexistence, so no matter who I married, it would have been an acquaintance. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me make clear, this is not church doctrine. It's me, being, <laughs> it's me being flippant when I don't know the answer to a question, and I don't know the answer to that question. But the, the First Presidency has affirmed that premortal covenanted marriages, glamorized by Saturday's warrior, are rare indeed. To most of us, Heavenly Father, say there are thousands of my sons and daughters attending BYU who are worthy to enter my house and covenant to be your eternal mate. You pick one that you like, who is worthy, and I will give you my blessings. Now, as stated, one of the implications of rejecting the Cinderella syndrome is the realization there's probably a very large number of individuals with whom you could establish an eternal marriage. In other words, there are actually many whose feet fit nicely within the glass slipper. A second implication is don't wait for others to carry your glass slipper about campus looking for a match. In other words, don't wait for the father to write the name of the person you are to marry on your kitchen wall or to deliver him or her to your front door. Instead, you must be a little proactive and seek someone you like, someone who is worthy, someone who inspires you to be a better person. The Spirit will guide you, but it won't do the courting for you, and it won't make the choice for you. Now, for those of you who are married, the Cinderella mentality that if I marry the right person, we'll live happily ever after fails to prepare couples for married life. 
when problems arise, and they do arise in every marriage, a husband or wife is tempted to think, oh, no, I married the wrong person because I am not happily ever after. I want nonsense. Good marriages are created after you get up off your knees at the temple. Strong marriages emerge out of helping each other obtain your education, struggling financially, dealing with sickness, coping with the shock produced at the birth of your first child. I testify to you that life changes and moves ahead in many unanticipated ways, and you will find yourself changing jobs, moving to a different city, raising teenagers, caring for an aged parent, being retired, and other similar events and activities. And it is from these that eternal marriages are produced, overcoming these problems, enjoying these highlights as a team what produce a happy marriage. I loved my dear wife when I married her 40 years ago this summer, but the love I felt for her then is insignificant to the love that I feel for her now after 40 years of trials and triumphs. It has grown through those years. Let me stress, there are no written money-back guarantees for marital happiness. There is no anti-divorce insurance. Occasionally, a spouse changes in ways that maintaining the marriage may become impossible. But I fear, because of the Cinderella complex, that it encourages people to give up on a relationship too quickly and to start another search for the perfect spouse. The best marriage guarantee you can have, you sign in the presence of your bishop, and it has to be renewed once a year. Using this recommend in the companionship of your husband or your wife is the best anti-divorce guarantee available. Not just because you've entered the temple, but because of what temple worthiness represents. This guarantee requires supporting each other in church callings, working out the payment of tithing, praying together, studying the scriptures together, and giving service together. Now let me say, in rejecting the Cinderella complex, I'm not suggesting that you marry just anyone. But I am suggesting that some of you, some of us, may have raised the bar a little too high. There are a few perfect people in the world. If you get lucky and meet one, he or she probably won't want to marry you. But don't despair. That's okay. The traits, the characteristics we're looking for in a spouse will emerge out of the years of experience together. My advice to you is to look for the potential in your spouse. If you haven't found her or him, look. If you have found them, look for the potential there and then work to achieve each other's desires. In other words, good marriages are earned by experience, not found with glass slippers. My second suggestion is to exercise faith and to have courage in dating and marriage. It is scary to marry. It's scary to stay married when things aren't going well. It's scary to be responsible for children. Some people are just plain afraid of marriage and parenthood. Perhaps their parents or close friends divorced, and they fear the same will happen to them. Have faith in your God and in His Son. They will guide and strengthen. Since... In reality, we are on their errand of creating eternal families and raising righteous children. Perhaps President Ezra Taft Benson said it best in simple words when he encouraged the young adults to, and I quote, replace your fears with faith. Replace your fears with faith. Let me share a scriptural example that I think is applicable to those considering marriage or parenthood. As you well know from studying the gospel doctrine this year, the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they feared to enter the land promised them by Jehovah. They eventually wandered up the east side of the Jordan River. They camped on Mount Nebo. They looked across at the promised land. 
Moses was instructed to pass the prophetic mantle to Joshua. Joshua was ready to perform a miracle. Let me back that up. Jehovah was ready to perform a mighty miracle to confirm that Joshua was to be the, the new prophet and also to test the courage of the Israelites one last time. A miracle parallel to Moses parting the Red Sea was to demonstrate the Lord's power resting on Joshua. Scriptures tell us that Joshua had the camp of Israel move close to the river and he asked each man and woman to sanctify themselves. Now, in today's terms, that means washing your clothes, turning off trashy TV, catching up your tithing, saying your personal prayers, and maybe even reading the scriptures. Get yourself ready to have the Spirit. Now, the next morning, the Israelites, the children of Israel, were not left as spectators high on the river bank when it was time to part the waters. Rather, 12 men carried the Ark of the Covenant to the water's edge. And then, as the Lord explained... And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. To faith and the courage for those twelve men and the children of Israel who followed to step off the banks into the swirling spring water, spring runoff waters. The soles of their feet had to be covered. Then the miracle happened. The waters were stopped. So it may be with you in your quest for an eternal partner or for an eternal relationship. We can't sit in our apartments. We can't spend long hours at work. Nor can we endlessly play video games and wait for the Lord to bring a spouse to the altar for us. Nor can we wait for the Lord to create special feelings of trust and love between our spouse and us. He doesn't magically cause perfect families to appear when there's been little, if any, effort on our part. Waving at a group of girls or guys across the cultural hall, driving your spouse to the grocery store once a week, or just remembering the name of your children are not resting the soles of your feet in the waters of marriage and family life. <laughs> it takes more effort. During the 1970s, cohabitation became popular, and it now allows couples to kind of ease into marriage. It allows a couple to try out being married without the commitments and responsibility of marriage. Social scientists in general lauded, not here BYU, but others, allotted this emerging social custom and argued that cohabitation would increase marital satisfaction and reduce divorce. They reasoned that cohabit cohabiting is an opportunity to confirm real compatibility, and thus a marriage that followed would be happier and more stable. This pronouncement was not one of the social sciences' finest hours. The truth of the matter is that 30 years of research has made it clear that couples who cohabit and then wed are less likely, are less happy, and more likely to divorce. Why? Because cohabiting couples were not willing to exercise the faith to make a lifelong commitment. And even though they marry, they are still not ready to make that commitment. The social sciences are starting to figure out this marriage thing a little bit better. I've got to say some good things about them after that bad. And one example is a recent book entitled In Defense of Marriage, which analyzes mountains of statistical data that demonstrate that men and women, that married men and women are happier, healthier, and live longer than single, cohabiting, or divorced men and women. Let me just say in conclusion that marriage is a part of God's great plan, and it's good for both the body and the soul. Now, I realize that not all will have the opportunity to marry in this life, but with faith and courage, most will. 
It is estimated by, that by age 45, 95% of all Americans have been married at least once. Now, don't wait till you're 44. <laughs> right now in your 20s, you're your best opportunity. Take advantage of it. But importantly, all righteous men and women will eventually share these blessings. I promise you that if you will pursue marriage and family life with sincere intent, that the Father will bless you and guide you so that you eventually achieve this blessed state. The third suggestion I offer to establish and nurture an eternal relationship is to keep physical intimacy at an appropriate level so as to enjoy the presence of the Spirit and to be worthy to seal your commitment to each other in the temple. Elder Jeffrey Holland gave a talk right here at BYU, and because of its pure, powerful doctrine, he was asked to repeat it in general conference. It is entitled, Of Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments. If you don't have a copy, ask your campus bishop for one. He has a large supply. It is pure doctrine that lovingly explains how chastity is a necessary condition for eternal life. As I mentioned in my introduction, hooking up and dating among, among non-LDS almost always involves sexual activity. Such must not be the case for LDS. I'm happy to report that Brother Top and my research with LDS high school students reveal that their premarital sexual activity is substantially below the national average. But at times it seems like as members of the church we get caught up in the ways of the world and end up adopting them to a degree. We not, may not be going as fast as the world, but sometimes we're headed in the same direction, and that's a tragedy. Let me illustrate this attitude and orientation with an example. A friend of mine was serving as bishop of a BYU ward. It was a singles ward. And he was teasing the elders' quorum president about not being married. And he received the stock reply back from the elders' quorum president. I just haven't found the right girl yet. My friend then asked, what kind of girl are you looking for? And the reply was, a girl worthy to go to the temple. But then with a sly grin, the elders' quorum president added, but just barely. But just barely. What was this young man saying? He was joking, I hope. But it was sounded like he was willing to keep the strict letter of the law, but wanted to push as close to serious sin as he could get. It is highly unlikely that the Spirit will be companion to anyone holding such an attitude or orientation. It is heading in a worldly direction, away from God's plan. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you never kiss someone until you kneel across the altar, but rather to keep physical intimacy within the bounds the Lord has set. I don't have the time and the energy to say more about appropriate intimate behavior, but I'm sure your campus bishops frequently discuss this topic. That's their calling. I do want to say a word or two about a different consequence of inappropriate intimacy. Occasionally, couples will say, well, it's a way of expressing our deep love for each other and it actually creates even deeper love. I want to say to you, frequently it destroys a potential eternal relationship. Let me illustrate with a scriptural example. This example involves two of King David's children. His son, Amnon, fell in love with his half-sister, Tamar. Same dad, different moms. He thought about her all day, dreamed about her all night. His cousin his friend, actually his cousin, noticed Amnon's funk and offered to help him in his pursuit of the maid Tamar. The scriptures say Jonadab, Amnon's friend, was a very subtle man. That means he was a devious man. Jonadab suggested that Amnon fake illness and that when his father, King David, asked what he could do to help him, that 
Amnon requests that Tamnar be sent to cook him some cakes. Cakes are the Hebrew equivalent of chicken soup. (laughs) The plan worked perfectly. When Tamnar finished cooking the cakes, Amnon sent away the servants and made a strong advance. Tamnar resisted, saying, and she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not this folly. So she was saying, Don't do this. It's wrong and it's stupid. And she then went on to explain that their father, King David, loved Amnon. He was his favorite son and would give him anything he asked, including her as a bride. But Amnon was beyond reason, was driven by his passion. So as the scriptures say, Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Now what has happened is bad. But now comes the part, the point that I want to make from this example of inappropriate behavior. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. Amnon did not send Tamar flowers, nor did he telephone her to express undying love. He hated her so strongly that he shamed her before the king's court and before all of Israel. Amazing. He loved her, then a half hour later he hated her. Why? Tamnar was associated with the guilt he felt for the terrible deed he had done. In his mind, she became the cause of his sin, and thus he hated her. So it is in today's world. A couple may have the potential for a celestial marriage, but they become too intimate. And then the feelings of tenderness and the love, they turn to guilt, and then to dislike perhaps even to hate. Too much intimacy too early is not the Lord's way. Now, in this example, I have focused on the single members of the church, but let me stress that married couples have the same responsibility to obey the law of chastity and that forbidden love has the same terrible consequences for them. Chastity, which requires virtue in our minds and hearts as well as in our actions, is absolutely necessary to an eternal marital relationship. My final suggestion is appropriate for those seeking a mate, for married couples, and for anyone else. This is just an all-purpose general recommendation suggestion. Many years ago, a couple asked me if I would provide them marriage counseling. Now, I I resist such requests. I am not a trained marriage counselor, and I really don't enjoy doing it. And actually, I think I'm pretty incompetent. But occasionally, circumstances conspire against me, and I'm forced to do it. And this was one of those cases. I had no choice. I'd worked with a couple for several weeks and had not made any real progress at reducing the anger and conflict in the marriage. One evening, as I waited for him to come to our home, I had a few minutes, and so I opened the scriptures. I was not looking for answers. I'm not one of those who open the scriptures and close your eyes and find it and open it up and there's the Lord's at. I just had a few minutes, and I wanted to create a framework, a, a mood that I would be receptive to the Spirit. One of my favorite sections of the New Testament is the Sermon on the Mount. And when I read Matthew 6, 43 and 44, I was struck with a powerful insight. I did find an answer. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and here's the part that hit me, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. When the couple arrived, I had the husband wait in the living room while I met with the wife in the family room. When I asked her if we could kneel and pray for her husband, she looked at me with wonderment. 
when I explained that I didn't want her to pray, that her husband would get run over by a large truck, or that he would develop a disfiguring disease, nor that he would conform to her every wish, but rather for her to sincerely pray for the Father to bless her husband with those things that would bring him true happiness, she simply replied, I can't do it. It didn't surprise me. I'd anticipated this response. It's not easy to love your enemy, nor to do good to him or her. But I was hoping we could get to the point that she could pray for him. I asked her if we could kneel and pray and ask she be given the compassion, the mercy, the love necessary to do so. We both took turns voicing a prayer, and after she had shed a few tears, she informed me she was ready to pray for her husband. She then offered a beautiful prayer for him. A remarkable change in her demeanor towards her husband was immediately obvious. There was nothing more to be accomplished. Uh, I ushered her into the living room and invited her husband into the family room, and we repeated the same sequence of event. His initial reaction, like her, was one of shock, dismay. But after offering a sincere prayer for his wife, his attitude and his feelings towards her changed, and some of the earlier love he had for her reappeared. I could see it in his countenance, and he could feel it in his heart. This was our last counseling session, and I think the story had a happy ending for the couple. I haven't seen them for several years, but the last time we had contact, they were still happily married. Now, I don't know whether they ever repeated this simple exercise, but I learned a great lesson from it that has impacted how I live my life. Most of us probably don't like those who hate us, and sadly, these feelings of dislike canker our soul. And amazingly, praying for them, people who hate you, reverses your feelings. Maybe the person still hates you, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that your heart is softened and the Spirit abides with you. And usually once you have changed your attitude and your feelings, that you change your subsequent actions and perhaps it will initiate a reduction of their hatred for you. Perhaps even a reconciliation may occur. Over the years, whenever I've been angry with Carolyn, I kneel and pray for this good woman. She's such a kind and loving person that my anger is usually my own fault. But whatever the cause, whenever I have these angry feelings, I testify to you that they are turned to increase love by sincere prayer. The Sunday I was practicing or editing what I was going to say, and Carolyn said, why don't you let me read and I'll give you some suggestions. So she did. She had some good suggestions. That night, just as we're going to sleep, I'm in a weakened state. She said, remember that part about how you pray for me when you're angry at me? And I didn't know what to say, but I said, yes. And she said, I heard you share that with our Jerusalem kids when you taught the uh, Sermon on the Mount on the Mount of Beatitudes several years ago. And whenever I'm angry at you, I pray for you, and I love you even more. Works every time. Now, as I laid there, I didn't know whether to be miffed at her for thinking that I had done something worthy to be angry <laughs> or to bless her for her goodness. As I thought about it, I was really tired and sleepy, and if I was miffed, I'd have to get up and pray for her, and I decided that... <laughs> that I was just going to go to sleep a happy man. And that's, <laughs> and that's usually how I do it. The implications for those of you who are single is to not only pray for yourself in a dating relationship, but also to pray for the young man or the young woman in whom you're interested. Pray for what's best for them. It may turn out that that's not you, but that's okay. The Lord will bless you and good things will happen. This simple action... 
We'll change feelings between husbands and wives, between mothers and fathers, between children and parents, between neighbors, and so on. When you're angry, when a relationship is stretched to the limit, sincerely pray for the person who at that moment hates you. It will bring a mighty miracle in your feelings and your ability to bear affliction. In conclusion, let me reiterate, these four suggestions are not guarantees of an eternal marriage, but they are consistent with the Lord's plan for His children and probably increase the likelihood. Remember that marriage is essential to eternal life and that good marriages are made, not found. Be courageous in your seeking after an eternal partner. If you found him or her, work together to create an eternal relationship. This is not hard work. In fact, it's rather pleasant and will bring great joy into your life. May God bless you in your studies at BYU. Be sure to study both the sacred and the secular. You have a great opportunity to do both here at BYU. I bear testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially the importance of eternal families. And I share this testimony in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. been listening to the Love and Marriage Podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.